Well, there's no end to the depths of issues that are down inside of us that we need to face. And that's why the attempt to face it by ourselves will lead to insanity. If you look in, if you try to figure out yourself, if you try to understand yourself, if you try to deal with and correct yourself, you will destroy yourself. Oswald Chambers says in connection with this, By heeding the reality of God's grace within us, we are never bothered again by the fact that we do not understand ourselves or that other people do not understand us. If anyone understood me, he would be my God. The only being who understands me is the being who created me and who redeems me. And he will never expound me to myself. He will only bring me to the place of reality by bringing me into contact with himself. And the heart then is at leisure from itself forever because it is in union with God. This is the issue. Coming into union with God and recognizing that all of the never-ending issues inside of us that we don't know what to do with have to be yielded up to Him. Now, you might say then, well, if that's true, why do I have to look at it and face it? Why can't I just say, okay, God, take all of me. Here I am. Now let's go and I'll serve the Lord for the rest of my life and not have to look at all these issues. Well, because, first of all, to be a person you have to be in touch with a certain degree of your inner life and all of the expressions of who you are come from within. So though there's a never-ending depth of issue inside you that you could dig into forever and never get to the bottom of, both good and bad, you only deal with the things that the Holy Spirit brings up. The thing that comes up in your relationships with people, the thing that comes up in your relationship to the church in your relationship with your wife or husband or children, the things the Holy Spirit brings up by the circumstances that you find yourself in are the things that the Holy Spirit is wanting to deal with. You don't go in and make up a menu of things you think need to be dealt with. You, do, you let Him tell you what He's dealing with, and that's what you cooperate with. Now, there, there's a great deal of rest that comes in that because then you can you know, realize that since He's in control, He knows what can... Uh, be brought up and what doesn't need to be brought up and you can rest in his wisdom to know that what's being brought up therefore is the right thing and he who begun this good work in you will finish it but you know we just have a tendency to try to fix ourselves uh, I heard an excellent message a few months ago by Bob Mumford on finding the real you and he talked about how we have a tendency to live above ourselves which means we become pharisaical and legalistic and judgmental of everyone. Or we have a tendency to live below ourselves, which is when we go back to old besetting sins or let our temper or our lust or whatever run away with us. That's living below ourselves. Or sometimes we get beside ourselves where we are emotionally out of control and crying and insecure or whatever. And then there's that rare occasion when we finally center in Christ we're not above ourselves, being a Pharisee we're not below ourselves, being uh, a, a backslider we're not beside ourselves, acting like a crazy man or a crazy woman but we are centered in Christ now this picture of being centered sometimes creates a, a false image of us feeling 
like Jesus is in the center and therefore we are no longer there with him. Christ-centeredness somehow paints kind of a fuzzy picture of picture of Jesus taking up residence in the core of us and we go somewhere else. It's not really an accurate picture of Christ-centeredness. Dr. Archibald Hart says of this, quote, We often contrast, quote, putting Christ at the center, end quote, of our lives with having the self at the center as if they are opposites of one another. I do not find this an accurate way of portraying Christ-centeredness in our living. When a person's heart is made new, Christ is automatically at the center of the self. He may not be in control of the ego or self-system, but Christ is always at the center of our core, the heart. Sanctification is not a matter of displacing the self. Where else on earth is the self going to go? Allowing God to completely occupy the rest of the self is a more accurate way of thinking about how God becomes central to our being. When we talk about putting Christ at the center, what we really mean is letting Christ control the whole self. If he already dominates our core self, we allow the Holy Spirit to do the work of sanctification by our cooperation. It is through the process of sanctification that we achieve the ultimate integration of the self. End quote. So when we talk about Christ-centeredness and the emerging of the true self, we're talking about him coming in and fulfilling the parts of us that have been broken, that have fallen short, and that in, in that emerging, in union with him, I have the capacity to be more than I ever could be. I don't stop loving with human love and then have only God's love pour through me. God's love comes and finishes my human love so that when my human love has gone as far as it can go, agape picks it up and carries it even further. Uh, as C.S. Lewis points out, the, the love of God doesn't come to kick out the other loves. It comes to give the other loves the capacity to be what they were created to be. God's love doesn't replace my love for my wife. Agape does not do away with romance. Agape gives romance the power to be what it was intended to be and not to fall short and become some twisted perversion of what God intended it to be. God does not take away my love for friends or family or children and give me a supernatural love in the place of it, but he incarnates my human loves and gives them the power to be what they were intended to be without being becoming twisted and broken into something God never intended them to be. So when we talk about the true self, we're not talking about being taken over or absorbed into some kind of supernatural, uh, eternal mind, and we just become an extension of that mind. We're talking about the personality that God created me to be, being given a freedom to come into its fullness because Christ has come in to redeem me and to fill me with himself so that by in being in union with himself, I can become myself. And that becomes a wonderful thing. I no longer have to look around to see if there's other people who are more attractive or more valuable or more uh, of what I feel like I never got to be. I begin to find out the rich treasure of what I was meant to be. 
and self-esteem is part of this. Self-acceptance is the fruit of this. Uh, you don't think higher than yourself because you're no longer trying to achieve some position of acceptance and honor to buck up your sagging ego. You don't think lower than yourself because you no longer feel ugly and unattractive and rejected and dirty because you're washed in the blood. You don't get beside yourself because you're no longer uh, taken over by periodic displays of emotionalism and insecurity and panic and fear. But you learn how to just quietly rest in the center. Isaiah 26, 3. He shall be kept in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusts in thee. This trust, this practice of the presence of Christ within that causes us to be able to center in on him and to quietly rest in him is Christian maturity. It's what we all long for. It's what the Apostle Peter speaks of when he says, pursue the peace of God. And the Amplified Translation refers to this peace, this shalom of God as being three things. Freedom from fears, freedoms from agitating passions, and freedom from moral conflicts. Freedom from fear, freedom from agitating passions or appetites of the flesh, and freedom from moral conflicts, struggles between myself, struggles between me and other people. I can be quiet. I can listen to that other voice. I can practice the presence of the Lord without fear that I'm rejected or or uh, hated or not welcomed in His presence. And in that presence, I'm able to open up and talk to Him about anything and everything. I'm actually able to have with God the Father the kind of dialogue with a father that I should have been able to have had with my natural father growing up if he had been available or father substitute if they had if they had been available until we hear the voice of God the father calling us into our true self we tend to be under the law waiting for permission to move waiting for someone to give us permission to be to give us permission to act to give us permission to exert ourselves and so consequently we may be 40 50 60 years old but still waiting for permission which never comes we never really grow, we never really achieve, we never really learn to live. In Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 9, Paul says, Now what I mean is that as long as the inheritor is a child and under age, he does not differ from a slave, although he is legally master of the estate. But he is under guardians and administrators until the date fixed by his father, so we also, when we were minors, were kept like slaves under the rules and rituals of the law, the elementary teachings of a system of external observations and regulations. But when the proper time had fully come, God sent his son, born of one woman, born subject to the law, to purchase the freedom of those who were subject to the law, that we might be adopted and have sonship conferred upon us, and be recognized as God's sons. And because you really are his sons, God has sent the Holy Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, 
then it follows that you are heirs through Christ. But at the previous, as at the previous time, when you had not come to be acquainted with and understand and know the true God, you were in bondage to the gods who were, by their very nature, not real gods at all. Now, however, that you have come to be acquainted with and understand and know the real, true God, rather to be understood and known by Him, how can you turn back again to the weak and beggarly and worthless elementary things of the religions before Christ came, whose slaves you once more want to become? This whole statement here concerning sonship and true relationship with Christ is a picture of what we're like when we don't come to true self-acceptance. Notice the words in just nine verses that are used here. Child, underage, slave, minors, rules, elementary, external observations, regulations, weak, beggarly, worthless, religion, elementary, and then the word slaves again. All of these are the pictures of the personality of a person who has not come into self-acceptance. Now, when we come to the cross and deal with these issues, the guilty old man within us is slain at the cross, and the new man comes forth, led by the Spirit, as a son. If the new man gets put to death by false submission to legalism, here's what happens. First, the submission to beggarly elements or legalism. Nitpicky. Always introspecting. Always looking within. Always trying to make sure you cross every T and dot every I. When this happens, mm-hmm. as we've already pointed out in some of our previous stories and testimonies, the creative energy of the person is stifled. Now when the creative energy is stifled, that creative energy begins to try to find expression in other ways. And if it can't come out in healthy, good, positive, creative ways, it will come out in the form of strange temptations, unusual mind uh, uh, patterns or thought patterns and uh, temptations that don't seem to make sense on the surface. These can turn into compulsions. And those compulsions can then be Uh, energized by the powers of darkness and turned into strange and strong fantasies. And this, of course, is what we term a neurosis, a false perception of truth and reality which finally results in full bondage. This is what Paul is addressing in Galatians chapter 4, and it's what we've been addressing in this entire subject here. I wrote in my own prayer journal when I was struggling through some of these issues. The word of the Lord came to me and said, Son, If you, by an act of obedient will, refuse to lose ground, I will immediately come to your aid, not only to help you keep your ground, but to give you even more ground. Don't receive insight and revelation passively. When I speak to you, write it down. Commune with me about it, and deal with it, and let it become part of your heart. And then the Lord took me to Mark chapter 4. What happens when God speaks his word to us, speaks his truth to us? Here's what the Holy Spirit says should happen, and it's a picture of what happens when we don't take that word and uh, nurture it in our hearts and make sure that it stays in us until it can take root and grow. 
Mark 4, verses 14 through 28 in the Amplified goes like this. The sower sows the word. The ones along the path are those who have the word sown in their hearts, but when they hear, Satan comes at once and by force takes away the word which was sown in their hearts. In the same way, the ones sown upon stony ground are those who, when they hear the word, at once receive it and welcome it with joy. Just like people who hear this teaching on self-acceptance. They love it. They love to hear it. They receive it with joy. But they allow no real root in themselves. They don't let it take root and go deep within. Sometimes because roots have to go through the ground that's broken up. And if the, if the hardness of heart has not been broken up by forgiveness and cleansing, then the message can't take root. See? But he says they receive the, the message with, with joy, but they allow no real root in themselves. And so they endure for a little while. But then when trouble or persecution arises from the enemy in order to stop the word and steal it so that they will not become fruitful, they become indignant, resentful, and they stumble and give up and fall away. Then the ones sown among the thorns are others who hear the word, but the cares and anxieties of the world and the distractions of the age and the false glamour of riches, and the craving and passionate desire for other things creep in and choke and suffocate the word, and it becomes fruitless. Can you relate to this in your past attempts at self-acceptance? But then there were those who were sown on good, well-adapted ground, ground that was prepared to receive. And by the way, what kind of ground is it that's usually prepared to receive? It's ground that's been broken up. Broken ground. Ground that has been, uh, had the plow run through it. These are those who hear the word and receive and welcome it and allow it to take root and it bears fruit. Some 30, some 60, some 100 fold. And then Jesus says this. Notice this. And he said unto them, Is the lamp brought in to be put under a bed or on a lampstand? Proverbs chapter 20, verse 27 says, The spirit of man is the lamp of the Lord, searching all the inward parts of the inner being. So Jesus, being a Jew and understanding the scriptures, is probably making a direct reference to that verse. He says, Does the light come uh, that you, you put on a lampstand for it to be covered up? Of course not. And then he says, Things are hidden temporarily only as a means of revelation. For there is nothing hidden unless it is to be revealed, nor is anything temporarily kept secret except in order that it may be made known. I used to hear that verse and I thought it meant everything I ever did, good, bad, or ugly, is going to be revealed to the whole universe on Judgment Day. That's not what the verse is talking about at all. It's talking about things about ourselves that we don't understand that the Holy Spirit wants to reveal to us. He says the only reason they're covered up is so that when they're uncovered, there's, it has an effect. Why do you wrap birthday presents? So that when they're unwrapped, the unveiling has a, a certain effect. In the same way, God says, I'm keeping certain things from you, but if you'll take the time to be still before me and listen to me, I'll show you everything that's missing and it'll all come up and begin to make sense in your life. Then he says here, if any man has ears to hear, let him hear and perceive and comprehend. Now notice this next part. Then Jesus said to them, Be careful 
what you are hearing. Or one translation says, be careful how you are hearing. He says, pay attention to the way you listen to me. Pay attention to what I, what I say to you, but also pay attention to the way you handle what I say to you. The measure of thought and study you give to the truth you hear will be the measure of virtue, excellence, resolution, and energy and knowledge that comes back to you. And more besides will be given to you who listen. For to him who has will more be given. But from him who has nothing, even what little he has will be taken away by force. The idea here is that if you don't hear the word of the Lord and receive it and nurture it and hold on to it, then what little you do have, the enemy will be able to come and by force take away any way he wants to. Kick you, attack you, make you mad, make you bitter, make you rail against the Lord and take away from you whatever he wants. Then Jesus says, The kingdom of God is like a man who scatters seed on the ground, then continues sleeping and rising night and day, while the seed sprouts and grows and increases. He knows not how. The earth produces, acting by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. What Jesus is saying here is, when I speak this word to your heart, when I begin to speak the truth to you about self-acceptance, uh, the Lord is saying, you know, I may or may not want to deal with all the specific events of your childhood, all the specific uh, uh, memories one by one. I, he says, I may not deal with that. I may just speak the word to you that I want you to believe and let that word take root in you. And that word, if you will nurture it and listen to it and not dig it up and throw it away because it wasn't a tree the first day it was planted, if you'll nurture it and water it by hearing and by worshiping and by reading the word and listening in prayer, as you listen to me, you will begin to become. Why? Because that seed in you will begin to take root in you and grow. And it will displace every other opposite thing in your life that has been put on you all this time. Habakkuk 2, verse 1 through 5, in reference to this uh holding on to the truth when you hear it says uh, oh I know I've been rash to talk out to God so plainly Habakkuk says I will in my thinking stand upon my post of observation and station myself on the tower and watch to see what he will say within me and what answers I will make to the perplexities uh, I have complained to him about and the Lord answered me and said write the vision and make it plain for the vision is yet for an appointed time, and it hastens to be fulfilled. It will not deceive or disappoint. Though it tarry, wait earnestly for it, because it will surely come. Behold the proud, his soul is not straight within him. See, not centered within him. But the just, by his faithfulness, shall live. Moreover, partying and money is treacherous. The proud man is restless and cannot stay at home. His appetite is large like that of hell and cannot be satisfied. He gathers people as if he owns them. Isn't that an amazing picture of the, the very personality of a person who is trying to struggle through to self-acceptance? He can't stay still. He can't wait and be, just be quiet before the Lord. He wants to always get up and go. His appetite is large. 
like that of hell. It cannot be satisfied. No matter what he looks at in any direction, he sees something else he wishes he was or wishes he has instead of who he really is. He gathers people as if he owns them. The manipulative tendency to try to get our needs met through people. But the word of the Lord is, be still and listen and write down what I'm saying to you and it will come. I'm saying all this to say this. When we talk about keeping a prayer journal and that it is a very meaningful and powerful step toward self-acceptance, we really are serious. Uh, you've heard me talk about it. You've heard Mario talk about it. You've heard Leanne talk about it, possibly. Uh, you've heard you've heard me mention it a dozen times if you've been to any of our conferences. Keeping a prayer journal is more than just keeping a little diary and writing down things that come to your mind. It really is a, a powerful way of interacting with the Lord concerning what's going on inside of you you see, when you write things down, you give it definition. When you give it definition, you begin to therefore have a greater understanding of what it says and what it is you're trying to say. And when you have uh, uh, the capacity to define it and capture it on paper, you've already decreased its power. Because when it's floating around on the inside of you, it's murky, it's not clear, it's, it's, uh, it, it's bigger and stronger than it really is. But when you capture it and put it on paper, you've not only helped define it, but you've shrunk it. Another thing about keeping a prayer journal is it, it will help keep you from becoming passive. Passivity is, as one writer put it, the poison the enemy injects into the soul just before he destroys it. Passivity is the abdication of the true self. And when you abdicate, abdicate your position uh, and you let circumstances of life just come in and blow you about in any direction, of course you're not going to make any progress to say the least. If anything, your, your, your abdication is making a place for darkness to come in. Uh, you begin to live in illusions. You begin to believe lies. Your mind begins to lose uh, focus and you begin to uh, be easily told whatever the power of darkness wants you to believe. If you walk in the Spirit, which means listening to God, you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh, which means listening to the neurosis, the words of the flesh and the devil and the world. Now, demonic illusions will come and suppress the mind in the hopes that if they can keep the mind suppressed, they can eventually take it over. But they only have the power we give them. <clears throat> Impure fantasy lives fill the place that uh, should be filled with wholesome, true revelation from God. So this is why when we begin to listen to God, God begins to uh, displace in us those false images and those old wrong ways of thinking and wrong patterns. And so how do we begin to cooperate with the Lord in this? Well, we, <clears throat> when these old thought patterns begin to come up, we write them down. We, by writing them down, we get them out of our head. We, we so to speak, capture them on paper. What thought patterns have you been listening to? What do you listen to? What do you think about yourself? Write down every negative thought pattern that you have. Some of you may be writing for days. But you begin to write those things down. Keeping them coming until they're all out on paper. Then on the other side of your notebook, you ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you and give the opposite view 
of what has been spoken here. The fact is, depending on how much struggle that you've had and how much abuse you've suffered and how much uh, uh, strength of will you have, a person can come out of self-hatred and into full self-acceptance in a matter of a few weeks, depending on how much they are willing to press in and deal with these issues uh, in the prayer journal. You learn to listen to God. Now, if you have come from a background of horrible abuse where listening to God uh, causes you only to be able to remember the horrible words of cursing spoken against you, you may need some help. You may need a prayer partner, somebody uh, pastorally related to you to help you listen, to listen to God with you until you learn that those horrible voices in your head are not the voice of God, but the voice of the memory of those the, of the abuse. Pray and ask the Holy Spirit to lift those 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 words out of your mind and ask the Holy Spirit to bind from your mind the effects of those horrible words and to forgive your abusers. And then begin to ask the Holy Spirit to replace those false words with His words. Now in closing, <clears throat> I want to speak to those of us who have just had a, a relatively difficult time coming into self-acceptance, but I also want to speak to those of you who may have suffered a great deal. Maybe you've, you've been disfigured. Maybe you have been twisted from birth. In our narcissistic and foolish American society especially, we put such a premium on physical appearance that even fairly uh, attractive people feel put down by their uh, everything they see in the society around them. But what does that therefore make a person who is deformed or disfigured feel? Oh, if God could just help us weigh things by the wisdom of eternity instead of by the foolishness of the, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. And to illustrate this need for this kind of wisdom for all of us, I would like to read an extensive part of a book by Elizabeth Googe that I highly recommend all of you to read. Even if you're not much of a reader, I wish you would read this novel called The Scent of Water. The Scent of Water is the story of a woman named Mary who had a cousin who was mentally ill. She only met this cousin once when, she, when, when Mary was a little girl. But... Mary grew up and, as an adult woman, came back and inherited the house that her mentally ill cousin had lived in. And part of the book has to do with Mary reading the journals of her mentally ill kinswoman. And I would like to read to you here a little bit of the story and let just let the Holy Spirit speak to your own heart about it. She says... Mary escaped with thankfulness to her own room next door, feeling loneliness to be the supreme blessing. But she was too tired to sleep, and when she was in bed, she put her dressing jacket around her shoulders and reached for a book. Then after trying to read the book for a while, she realizes that's not what she wants to do, and she says it was Cousin Mary that she found she really wanted. This was her cousin that I've told you about, who, whose home she had inherited. Her name was Mary, too. 
So this blessing of loneliness was not really loneliness. Real loneliness was something unendurable. What one wanted when exhausted by the noise and impact of physical bodies was not no people, but disembodied people. In other words, all those citizens of beloved books who could be taken to one's heart and put away again in silence with no hurt feelings. And remember that Cousin Mary was was very mentally ill and would sink into sometimes long and dark uh, holes of depression. And so Cousin Mary writes about uh, her nurse who has had to go away for a holiday because she was so exhausted. She says, I've had a bad time this winter. Jenny got worn out looking after me and Dr. Partridge said she must go away for a, a while and rest. So I came here. I was invited and there seemed nothing else for me to do. But until a few days ago, I didn't know how to bear it. That as well as injuring Jenny, I had to be an anxiety to the dear old couple here and a nuisance to the servants. I was very wretched, for the aftermath of this last bad time has been horrible. I've been despairing, not because of my illness, because I have found meaning and purpose in that, but because of the burden I am to other people and because I was convinced that everyone must be shrinking from me. And so hating myself, I shrank from them, and that created a new sort of loneliness. I was alone with self-hatred, and that was utterly vile, she said. But then she begins to talk about picking up a book, and in the reading of this book, she begins to learn a deeper lesson of self-acceptance than she'd ever known before. And she says, after reading the story, She says, quote, I'm here now to write about the book that is lying on my lap and about one of the craftsmen who was an ancient worker there in the, in the area where she lived. His name was William the Hunchback. I cannot understand now how I've been so long in finding out about him since I've known him so long. Some years ago, I went to the tower room to poke about among the rubbish, but I did not connect the William the Hunchback that I saw carved on the wall with the William the Hunchback carved inside the lid of my little treasure chest or the ugly humorous monk's face with the thorn around his neck which I saw when I was in the hospital or realized that it was himself he who had carved these pictures at the bottom of the stairs leading to his workshop in the tower. So she realizes that all these carved images of this ugly funny-looking hunchback are all the same the same man, this William the Hunchback. And so she begins to tell us about William. She says, I know, she says, he took on the name of William because Sir William, the first castle's owner, had been so good to him. He was not only hunchbacked, but as the old book says, he was mightily misshapen with short bow legs and long arms that hung down, sickly and very plain of countenance so much so that other children were scared of him or laughed and threw stones at him. And he himself, neglected as he was by the uncle whom he lived with and knocked about by his horde of healthy children that grew up near him, grew to be as scared of the human race as a hunted animal. And a hunted wild creature he might have been until the end had not Sir William rescued him one day from a crowd of of children mistreating him taken pity on him and given him work to do at the manor. He became the dog boy first and then later he was promoted to help with the horses 
and then to be a beekeeper, for he was wonderfully clever with all animals and wild creatures, and they loved him greatly. When any animals in the neighborhood were sick or injured, he was sent for to care for them, for he had a knowledge of the healing herbs and hands gifted with healing. He would have liked to care for human creatures in the same way, but to his grief they continued to shrink from him, and so he continued to shrink from them. He was a skillful carver in wood and stone, and in this work he found pleasure, and despite frequent sickness of body, he did not manage too badly whatever his inward sorrow until such time as Sir William had a bad fall while hunting and received injuries from which he eventually died. Then did grief and despair take hold of the hunchback, for his love and life had been centered upon his master. His only comfort was his bees, and soon they were taken away from him, for Sir William had left no heir, and the manor passed to another family, who brought in their own servants with them. They were repelled by William's appearance and dismissed him. He went into the woods and lived there alone for some months, finding shelter in bad weather in one of the abbey barns that had in early days been a guest house and marked the boundary of the abbey lands upon the north. Kindly villagers brought bread and left it by the well beside the barn, and he gathered berries and edible fruit, for he would never kill wild animals for food. Somehow he managed to live. Then one day in early spring he suddenly appeared among the stonemasons who were enlarging the abbey church and with changed and smiling countenance offered them his services and labored with them until the work was completed. Then with the same cheerful face, quite changed from the man he had been, he presented himself before the abbot and asked if he might be accepted as a lay brother. He was put in charge of the bees and later made an infirmarian, which is an old English word, by the way, for a, a nurse. And the abbot gave him a workshop in the tower where in his spare time he could continue to use his skill with wood and stone. He lived until an old age, dying just before the dissolution of the abbey, and was reckoned at the time of his death to be a very holy man. He himself, however, deemed those mistaken who called him holy, declaring himself to be a great sinner saved from despair only by the mercy of God that came upon him in the vision in the wood. He delighted to tell this story and believed implicitly in his vision. When it was suggested to him that he had imagined what he saw, he said, Dream or vision, what did it matter? Whichever it was, his God had by its means lifted him out of despair. He had, he said, that afternoon in early spring, taken shelter in the barn from a sudden drenching thunderstorm. Around sunset the rain ceased, and he went outside to get himself a drink of water from the well under the thorn tree. He came out in a dazzle of gold to the east, where the last of the storm clouds made a violent bruise in the sky. There was a rainbow. The trees were rosy with the swelling buds, and the grass sparkled. The birds were singing, and the first primroses were in bloom around the wall. Yet there was no lightening of his darkness as he stood looking at all this, only a deepening of his pain. For caught in this web of beauty, he felt himself a thing of horror, ugly and dirty in body, mind, and soul. He wished he could tear himself out of the shining web, that he might no longer defile it. And then the thought came to him. Why not? On the other side of the well was the thorn, a young tree but with stout branches, and inside the barn there was a length of rope. For a short while after... He would continue to defile the web, and then he would be found and buried, and the fair earth would be finished with him. 
He looked hard at the tree, seeing it already as his gallows, and then he found that he could not look away. There were no green leaves yet to veil the starkness of it. It was still a winter tree, and the thorns looked long and sharp. He looked deeper and deeper into the tree, into the heart of it, trying to see himself hanging on the tree, and presently, with horror, he did see himself hanging there. And then, staring as though nothing of him now existed except his straining eyes and thundering heart, he realized it was not him hanging on the tree, but another, and he knew who it was. He would never afterward attempt to describe what he saw. He could not. All he could say was that he believed that the merciful Lord of life had accepted a death so shameful by deliberate intent of love for us so that nothing that can happen to the body should cause any man to feel himself separated from God. And he said further that fearful though the sight was, it was not what he saw that made him cast himself down upon the ground with his face hidden in the grass, weeping uncontrollably, but it was the Lord of heaven giving himself into the hands of men, that is to say, into his twisted hands, to do with what he would. And he realized, therefore, that it had been by his hands that the Lord had been broken. This, he said, he had never sufficiently considered, and now, considering it, his heart broke. A little later, he was able to stop weeping and lifted himself up from the ground. He dared to look again into the heart of the tree. It was as it had been, a bare winter tree full of thorns. But he knew now that he need never hang there since another had chosen to hang there in his place, ridding the world of his ugliness by taking his sin into his own body that it might die with him. For he saw now that his true ugliness had been withdrawn by the Lord while he was weeping. His misshapen body remained, but men would not again shrink from him. What they had shrunk from had been his own sin of self-hatred that had made him like a beaten cur in their presence. Why should he hate himself, since God had loved him enough to die for him? He would go back into the world and smile at all the folk in it and love them with the same love, and they would no longer shrink from him. When their bodies were sick, they would even put themselves gladly into his hands, as the creatures did. He held out his hands and looked at them, remembering how they had treated his Lord. He would make reparation now to those other men who mysteriously were his Lord with these hands. The least he could do, he, the man who had so brutally done what he would when his trusting Lord had put himself into his hands, was now to put himself into his Lord's hands to be done with what his Lord willed. He held out his hands toward the tree, empty to his human sight, yet containing all that he had been and all that he was, and said aloud, Into thy hands. Well, if you'll forgive me for indulging such a long quotation from Elizabeth Googe, I couldn't resist the opportunity to share with you 
that picture in literature of the very struggle that we've spent the last three hours trying to communicate. Maybe you are only struggling with a, a, a slight feeling of inadequacy in some area of your life that you know you can correct with just a little bit of spiritual discipline. Or maybe your disfigurement is not of the body, it is of the soul because you have thrown yourself away in sin and it's taking you quite a long time to be able to truly forgive yourself and recognize that you are a sinner saved by grace and that you are forgiven and it's time to get up and get on with your life. But maybe you are like William the Hunchback. Maybe you're disfigured. Maybe the very idea of self-acceptance seems to be a mockery to you. And it's been very difficult for you to believe that there's any good that could possibly ever come out of your twisted body or disfigured face or shrunken limbs or marred features. But I just ask the Holy Spirit to come now in the closing moments of this time together. I ask you, Holy Spirit, to minister to the heart and to the soul of any man or woman, boy or girl, listening to this study. That you would take away from us, Lord, our fleshly, worldly way of deciding what is precious and what is not, what is valuable and what is not. Lord, we, even though we're Christians, have so allowed the world, the flesh, and the devil, the media, magazines, Hollywood, television. We've allowed all those things to say to us, a valuable person has a certain kind of appearance and a certain kind of look, and an unvaluable, ugly person doesn't really matter. Lord, in our motion pictures, we always make the bad guy the ugly guy, never realizing that, as your word says, God doesn't look on the outward appearance, God looks on the heart that there are many a whitewashed tomb that's full of dead men's bones, where at the same time there may be many a broken temple outwardly, but inwardly there's a holy treasure that Jesus died to redeem. I ask you, Father, to deliver us now in these closing moments of this teaching. Deliver us, Father, in Jesus' name from this false view of, of ourselves, false view of what is valuable and good, Wash our minds from it. Help us realize what an atrocity it is, what a, an insult to you it is. For you who died for us, you who were twisted on the tree, to devalue ourselves just because we don't have a certain physical look. Your word says that on the cross you were beaten beyond human recognition. The prophet Isaiah says that of your appearance there was no comeliness or beauty that men would desire you and that you were from the top of your head to the soles of your feet full of wounds and bruises and putrefying sores that were not mollified with ointment and were not cleansed or dressed or healed. And the Apostle Peter says that this was for our healing. I ask you, Lord Jesus, to show us the cross. I ask you, Father, in our struggle to accept ourselves, that we would get our eyes off of what the world calls attractive and embrace the unattractiveness of the cross die there with you and let you raise us up the true person the true self that you intended us to be in the name of the father and of the son
and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.